Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Wednesday, and there are just 13 days to go before the election. Um, I, I, I keep wanting to like write a diary so that I could read it a couple of years from now or a couple of months from now or whatever, just just to go back and say, okay, how crazy was it? What did you think was happening? What do you think was going to to happen? I mean, so today you wake up and, you know, the day after picking a fight with Anthony Fauci, the president of the United States picks a fight with Leslie Stahl and storms out of a 60 Minutes interview, which uh, then he, now, he's, now he's threatening to release it early, which uh, who knows what they do. Uh, lawyers uh, are saying they can't find the parents of more than 500 kids who were separated uh, from their parents at the border by the administration. That story's bad. Mitch McConnell, amazingly enough, is trying to kill a coronavirus relief deal even as the pandemic explodes across the country. There were more than 60,000 new cases just yesterday. And and as I mentioned on the podcast yesterday with Benjamin Wittes, I can't get past the fact that uh, yesterday Trump is demanding that his attorney general do exactly what he asked the president of the Ukraine to do, which is to open up an investigation into the Bidens. And just to put the cherry on the cake here, it turns out that Trump has a bank account in China. So here we're at, here we are less than two weeks before the campaign. There is a Supreme Court nomination that is pending. Um, We are going to have the final debate tomorrow night. The the first debate, as far as I know, where there is officially a mute button, a mute button that will be used to tell the president of the United States to shut up during a debate. I'm all for this, by the way. Um, President has kind of abandoned the whole law and order campaign. And now it's all about Hunter Biden all the time. You know, Hunter Biden is bad, bad, bad. It does say something about the campaign that that uh, we are all all in on on the laptop. So, joining me to talk about this, Mark Salter, whose Twitter biography reads, "I used to be almost somebody." <laughs> hey, happy Wednesday, Mark. <laughs> Same to you, Charlie. Thanks for having me on. I love that. I used to be almost somebody. I feel that way. <laughs> I, I really identify. I'm bonding with you. The moment I saw that, I used to be almost somebody. <laughs> I'm, I exult in my obscurity. Well, we we all need to at a certain point, especially those of us who are never Trumpers. Uh, Mark, of course, is uh, is a longtime uh, friend, confidant, uh, speechwriter, and biographer of uh, the late John McCain, and he has a new book out, "The Luckiest Man." Life with John McCain it came out uh, last week. It's getting just fantastic reviews. Um, starred review in Kirkus, uh, one of John McCain's key staffers, turns in an affecting memoir. Salter gives a highly readable blow-by-blow account, one of the best fly-on-the-wall political memoir- memoirs in recent memory. Highly recommended. That's pretty good, Mark. And that's, oh, very, that's- very nice to read that. Yeah, thank you. And then John Meacham. We all know John Meacham. Franklin Roosevelt had Lewis Howe and Harry Hopkins. JFK had Ted Sorensen and Arthur Schlesinger Jr. And John McCain had Mark Salter. In this compelling, honest, and much-needed book, Salter, McCain's longtime co-author and advisor captures the raucous, resilient, and invigorating spirit of the late war hero and legendary senator. McCain wasn't always right, but he was always decent. And Salter's terrific account reminds us of what the public ser- what public service and public servants servants ought to be like. So that's good stuff. That's good stuff. So congratulations on that, Mark. Thanks very much. All right. So we're going to get to to McCain in just a moment, but let's let's do a little choose your own adventure for the moment. You've been in politics for what, like 80 years now? 
Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I, 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 I actually do feel I've been like trying that. to escape for the last thirty, but <laughs> so choose your own adventure here. What 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 story? Just let's fixate on one story that you're just fascinated in. Jeffrey Tubin doesn't count because we did. <laughs> <that today, so. laughs> I'm really not that fascinated by it. Um, you know, you've piqued my curiosity about 60 minutes. I'm over 65. You know, it's one of our favorite shows, my cohort of senior citizens. Yeah. You know, we'd, we'd love to see the president turn in a good performance you know, on Sunday. I, 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 know, I, I am fascinated by this, um, it, you know, that, that he walks out of an interview with Leslie Stahl, who I'm sure he asked him some tough questions. But what, what was the question that, that, that flipped his trigger? I mean, we're going to find out, right? Yeah, who knows? Tony Fauci, who apparently is his bet noir now. But uh, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I've said weeks ago, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer able to suspend my disbelief. But, you know, Trump is able to stun me anew almost every day. But uh, I mean, you would think, you know, that he was trying really hard not to win re-election. But uh, We'll see. Maybe there's some some secret hidden genius here. But uh, well, I, you know, I, I, I was reading some of the the, the people who always attribute the the, the four dimensional chess to to uh, to Trump and saying, well, you know, this is his way of standing up against the media elites. He doesn't lose anything by talking about how biased CBS is, and that's like, okay, right, we got it. But you know, you've already got those people. I mean, yeah. it's like everything's a rally speech now. Okay, yeah. you you nailed down the base. We know that. He's he's forever playing to his crowd, you know. What whatever's right in front of him is who he plays to, and uh, and uh, you know the memory of his cheering MAGA crowds, uh, you know, is ever present in his mind, I guess. But you know there aren't enough of them. Um, I'm sure people who can count have been telling him, but uh, he persists. But this is not strategy. This is a snit. This the here's the guy who's supposed to be you know the strong man. You know right. the the orange duce, the man who you know from the, the the balcony, and he runs away from Leslie Stahl. I'm sure that's not the way the MAGA heads are going to see this, but no. it, it's like it's like run away, run away, and then he's in such a snit. He was supposed to come back for uh, a chat with Mike Pence, you know, a walk and talk or something you know, that they do, and and there's Pence sitting around holding his pencil, um, <laughs> and it's like no, the, the president the has gone upstairs. <laughs> The president's going upstairs to take a warm bath in Fox News or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. So, the only thing he's, he hasn't given Pence yet so far is COVID like he gave Christie. But that's, well, not that, we, that, not, not that we know. So, <laughs> yeah, I am fascinated by that. I'm also fascinated by the, um, the brilliant uh, communications uh, strategy here of bringing the maximum amount of attention to this show. <laughs> because... I probably wouldn't on a, on a Sunday night. I probably wouldn't have watched 60 Minutes, you know, because it's like I really am desperately trying to grab for a life. But now you have to, right? You absolutely have to watch it. It's must-see TV now. It, it usually is for lots of lots of senior citizens. And, uh, you know, uh, but I don't, you know, who knows? I mean, you would, like I said, you would think he was he was trying to lose it. So the other story that fascinates me, and, and you've been in campaigns for a long time, and this is wonky and this is nerdy. I am totally fascinated by the story of how the Trump campaign blew a billion dollars. I mean, this is just this is it is so amazing to read the stories about how he is being absolutely pummeled on television by Joe Biden. Uh, again, I've, I've said this before, but. Nobody saw this coming. I mean, how do you piss away 
a billion dollars. Boy, I, I remarked somewhere else. I, I wish I'd gotten into the media consulting business instead of the speech writing business. But uh, I, I don't know. I mean, the funniest line in that story is the million and a half he blew on DC, <laughs> on oh. the DC market. You know, Biden may be kicking the shit out of him in every battleground state, but by God, he's he's competitive in DC. It's just- no, that's that's self care. It, it's like okay, we, we we have to have things that the presidency when he's sitting up there in the residence. We got to do this. It's sort of you know, it's a it's again the the, the warm bath of, of of you know Donald Trump's safe space. I, I love the, the the quote from almost Tubin like you might say. <laughs> well, I you know what I was about to go there. <laughs> it's like. There's, 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 there's <laughs> politics that is designed to actually accomplish something. And then there are things that are just designed to kind of pleasure yourself. And I think that, <laughs> I think that, that maybe he, maybe, could we invent a word here that the, the Trump campaign tubed itself? <laughs> so, but here's the quote from Mike Murphy, uh, who's been around Republican circles forever. You, you know, you know, Mike Murphy. I know Mike well. They spent their money on unnecessary overhead, lifestyles of the rich and famous activity by the campaign staff, and vanity ads. You could literally have 10 monkeys with flamethrowers go after the money, <laughs> and they wouldn't have burned through it as stupidly. Murphy's still the quickest wit in politics, isn't he? <laughs> that, 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 is, uh, that, yeah, that, that, is, that is the case. I, the other stuff seems, you know, the other stories, the, the fact that the president is, is, is replaying his greatest hits from U- Ukraine and the Hunter Biden thing and the way the conservative media is sort of lapping it up. But that just has the whole flop sweat feel about it. Uh, I know. And, and uh, your, your senator there in Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, grabbing onto it is it does, it does absolutely feel that way. You know, I don't know who really outside of the, you know, red hats uh, are going to find fault with Joe Biden for loving his son, no matter how much trouble or how, you know, how much hurt the kid is in or the man is in. Um, uh, it was just, and I thought Ron Johnson's, that was one of the most offensive, despicable things I've heard a member of the Senate say in a long time. And boy, there's been a lot of crap coming out of that place lately. But that was something. Oh, just, just pound on my head here. It's just, you, you know, I'm. This is my my home state senator, and of course, I've yeah. known Ron John yeah. for a long time. But that moment where he's on national television throwing out the child porn allegation. Right. I mean, there. there there, look, I mean, I know there are no longer any lines in politics, but it's interesting that outside of that moment, n- nobody's even bringing this up. And, you know, this is the seat. I have to actually do the math on this. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. I'll be really embarrassed if I'm wrong about this, but he's holding the seat held by Joe McCarthy. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, so. Well, it was certainly an indecent thing. Um, no doubt about that. Well, I mean, I, Joe McCarthy was was ultimately censured uh, by the United States Senate, and that was really the end of his career. And, you know, it, it, it's one thing to be um, – because we keep lowering our standards and redefining deviancy. So it, it's it's one thing to be a rabid partisan, you know, not that I'm, I'm, I'm you know, pro that. But when you are throwing out stuff that sounds like it came out of a QAnon, uh, you know, Facebook post about child yeah. pornography, I mean, right. that is just, I, you know, Mark, I got to tell you, I just, I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience. People ask me, what happened? What happened to him? And right. and my answer is, I don't freaking know. I, 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 I mean, he's, he's a conduit for Russian disinformation, I guess, you know, they're, you know, it's sort of. <clears throat> on the 
on the policy side of McCarthyism, he seems to be taking an odd approach. But uh, I mean, that's just what Trump's done to the party, though. What what Trump's done to you know, he's either you know, cast them all into some sort of silent paralysis. We're I'm talking about Republicans, you know, or or, or it's become you know, it's become an environment, a political environment in the Republican Party where uh, Joe McCarthy would never be censured. That's you know, true. That, you yeah. know that it would never happen. Why? Why? It doesn't matter if something's true or not. If 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 a lie works better than the truth, and the lie's preferable, there's no moral quality to it. It's just it's appalling. They've lost senses of honor. There's nothing left. I don't know how some people look themselves in the mirror some mornings, but it's you know something like that. Where you no. take a guy who's obviously got a son who's 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 got some problems. You know, a man who has lost more than most of us have lost in his life in terms of loved ones, um, you know, and say something like that. I mean, just good God, man, have, you, know, you can't even have any self-respect to do that, not much less, you know, a sense of decency to others. And that's not going to change after Donald Trump leaves. I mean, that's the the damage which is continuing um, th- this is going to be feel like a, a digression, but but it's a podcast, so you can do a digression. Uh, ben, ben Shapiro has you know is rationalizing you know how he's gone from being a never Trumper to being you know all in for for Trump, and he's he is totally all in. And one of his um, rationalizations is that okay, so Donald Trump's a man of lousy character. He wasn't wrong about his character. He was wrong about his you know that he, he turned out to be a real conservative, whatever that means. But uh, he wasn't wrong about the man you know having a deficient character. But then he goes on to say that all of the damage that that was done by his bad character has already been done. So you, you might as well just, you know, keep going with it, which is so incandescently stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry. It is yeah. just so it, it it's so devoid of of any sort of uh, reality check, because a man of an awful character can not only do direct damage, he can do the kind of moral damage that you were just describing to the entire party by by basically stripping out any sense of decency and honor from from his supporters, from his allies, from you know, from you know, his, his you know, right, from the entire political culture. Yeah, it's uh, he's a well, Shapiro's a poser, and <laughs> he's a, a little bit of a grift. Uh, Trump, Trump, the. Uh, Turned out to be more of a conservative who's right now trying to bid up Nancy Pelosi on, uh, you know, on the on the on the stimulus bill, um, you know, who's stabbed allies in the back, who's walked away from, you know, turn, you know, sort of sucked up to our adversaries. I mean, it's, uh, you know, conservatives used to believe character matters. Used to conservatives used to believe character matters more than anything else. I I have here in, in my bookshelf uh, sort of the the detritus of my last twenty years. You know all of these books, in, including pretty much a full collection of the Bill Bennett books about yeah, honor and character and the Book of Virtues, which just are which, sort of which, like which chapter would have Trump fit under? You'd wonder. <laughs> and, and of course he he's all in. Okay, so speaking of character, because this is where you know your book and you've obviously been giving a lot of thought to this. You know how we went from an era that looked at somebody like a John McCain and said, this is a hero. This is, this is a man you can disagree with him. Um, but this is somebody who is, you know, to be admired to having a political party run by headed by somebody who is the absolute antithesis of John McCain. And my theory all along has been that Donald Trump can't, could never deal 
with the reality of the idea of John McCain because he understands that John McCain was the kind of man that he could never be. Right. I mean, that's, uh, you know, uh, they've had issues going way back. I report about something in the mid nineties, uh, but uh, um, with Trump trying to tried to uh, get something out of him for making a campaign donation. But uh, um, yeah, it, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure how we got here, Charlie. I guess at some point elections became no longer a means to an end. They just became the end. <laughs> and uh, and it didn't matter you know, what you did to hold on to office. It, it, everything was fair game. And if some, I mean, I doubt you could find a hundred uh, Republicans in Washington. It would, it would have thought, you know, that, you know, the, 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 in the 2000, 2016 Republican convention that it was a good idea to be nominating Donald Trump or that he reflected any of their values, which of course he doesn't, you know, um, but, so, you know, they all, you know, well, judges, tax cuts, there you go. You know, I mean, you know, but if Trump thought there was something in it for him to take all those tax cuts away, he'd do it in a minute. He doesn't have a philosophical principle. He's just got insecurities. That's all. And, and, you know, it's, uh, he's a black hole of narcissism, but, uh, there's nothing, there's not, nothing else that, Nothing else that he is. So tell me about tell me about this book um, and and how you went about writing it. The luckiest man alive, which I strongly sure. recommend. Fantastic, fantastic reviews. You spent years with 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 John McCain. So so just tell me about the the process of you know in this era to write a biography of of a man who is is, is really sort of the ultimate contrarian in the era of Trump. Yeah. You know, he, uh, so you're right. I worked for him for about 30 years and, uh, we became good friends over the course of that. And, um, he and I wrote books together, seven of them. And, you know, it became sort of a habit that I would write about McCain every other year or so. And, uh, uh, but I wanted to write, see if I could write about him. Um, you know, my publisher had wanted a biography, but one from my, my perspective. Now I, I didn't know him when he was in the Navy. Um, mm -hmm. so I had to rely on the things he told me and the clues to how he felt about things, um, that he gave me, uh, stuff that he said, you know, quite explicitly and stuff that he just handed at, you know, to, to write about his relationship with his family and his early childhood and, uh, his time in the Navy and at Naval Academy and his, his prisoner of war experience. Um, uh, and I also had notes from, you know, hours and hours and hours of interviews that we did um, when we were writing his various memoirs. So you, uh, you know how his mind works. Yeah, you, you you knew because you spent so much time with him, and you went yeah. through the the the, the thought process. Yeah. So John McCain was never an ideologue. He was never one thing or another. So what's the? Th I'm going to ask this in a different way in, in a sure. few minutes too. So what's the through line? In, okay. in John, John McCain's yeah. philosophy or his approach right. to politics. Yeah, he didn't have so much of a political philosophy as he had a code of conduct. Um, and that code of conduct was informed. He was a very, he's a guy with, he's a fascinating personality. He had real dualities to his nature. And uh, one of them was he was a great romantic uh, about the causes he was involved in. And, uh, and the most important cause he was involved in, as he viewed it, in his public service to the United States, was to prove that self-government was the only moral government and that everybody's entitled to it. Um, but but that code of conduct, you know, was informed by his experience. So he was, a, even though he was a romantic about his causes, he was a great cynic about the world. And that's because he, in the same experience in Vietnam, he experienced the best and the worst of humanity. Um, and, it, and I think it really informed that he never gave up hope, no matter how bleak the situation. That's why, you know, resistance movements and dissidents in countries all over the world knew him 
knew him and admired him. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, Joe Lieberman will tell you a story once of McCain walking into a refugee camp, a Syrian refugee camp in, 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 the, in southern Turkey that had just, they had, Kofi Annan, the former UN Secretary General, had just been there, and they chased him out of the place, throwing their shoes at him and everything. And as McCain approached, the whole place started chanting McCain, McCain, mm-hmm. McCain. You know, um, my 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 daughter was a Peace Corps volunteer in Cambodia, and uh, um, near the really near the end of John's life, she was teaching in a remote village in Cambodia, and one of her Cambodian counterparts was sort of bemoaning their lack of uh, free freedom in Cambodia and uh, an autocratic government and uh, and said to her, um, but we have friends in America who are trying to help us. John McCain. John McCain is trying to help us. He, he had no idea my daughter had any connection to John McCain, but that's, you know, that's, I don't think people appreciated just how revered around the world he was by people who were struggling and fighting for their freedom. And that all became, that's, that's the cause McCain served all his life and believed that, if not absolved him, redeemed him from whatever flaws and failings he had in life. And he, he was quite aware of them. He knew he had a temper. He knew he could be impetuous. He knew he'd been, you know, unnecessarily rebellious in institutions he had come to revere in later life, like the Naval Academy and Episcopal High School. And, uh, and you know, he borrowed from their codes of conduct, from the literature he read. He was a, one of the most well-read people I've ever known in my life, both literature and non-literature. He had an endless, restless curiosity about the world, which he got from his mother, who just passed away last week at the yeah. age of 108, um, you know. And uh, and then he was raised, you know, by his father and grandfather to, you know, in sort of the ethos of, uh, an officer doesn't lie, cheat, or steal. Those things matter to him to the end of his day. He once told me he had, you know, he had a, a not a, a completely um, um, easy relationship with his father, um, but 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 he admired his father and said to me once when we were working, uh, he, like his father, he was asked once to give the commencement address to the Naval Academy. I said, well, what, what would you say about your father? And, this? and he goes, well, you know, they're there, meaning his father and grandfather, who were both four-star admirals. Hmm. Their respect for me yeah. has been the most lasting ambition of my life. Yeah, no pressure there. Yeah. Um, so it's... Uh, Interesting that, that you describe that duality that you're a romantic and a cynic and they're yeah. not contradictory. No, he, you know, and it, it's just, I, I wrote this line. I've, I'm happy with it. So I, okay. I quote myself all the time on it, but you know, he, he thought the most uh, marvelous of human achievements was to not lose hope when hope had taught you, when experience had taught you hope is for fools. And that's, and he managed to do it, you know, and it's, you know, we were talking in the last book I did with him, which was finished in the year he was dying. Um, he wanted to talk, uh, write a lot about, you know, the sort of human rights movements he associated with. He was very influenced by Scoop Jackson, who he knew very mm-hmm. well, traveled with, and uh, um, and by stories from Natan Sharansky about how, how Reagan inspired them when they were all in the gulag. And, uh, um, um, but uh, um, he, he wanted to write about, you know, the, what appeared to some people as the hopelessness of some of these causes. And he, he mentioned Belarus Bell, and, uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and he talked about meeting the same dissidents year after year. They wouldn't let him into Minsk, so he had to meet him in, in in Latvia or Lithuania or one of the Baltics. And uh, 
he said, boy, it'd be the same faces, same faces, and they'd be at it every year, and they'd never get anywhere with them, you know, but the God, they never quit. It was just so damn admirable, you know, it's just, you know, because they, you know, sort of sorry, sad sack, you know, <laughs> but they at it and at it and at it. He admired those types of people more than any other, and here we are now, uh, two years after his passing, when those same people are now seeing that, you know, their movement come to, you know, some kind of you know, fruition here in these massive protests in, 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 in that country. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's something to it. There's, he taught me the thing McCain taught me more than any others. Cause I'm, you know, I, I have a dark sensibility too. I just don't have the, um, you know, you know, I, I find, uh, you know, it's dark enough where I, it doesn't, I'm not as hopeful as he was, but he taught me that hope, hope makes all good things possible in this world and you got to hold on to it. Well, he also had that 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 sensibility that that we were. Um, this isn't his phrase, but I mean, it was Reagan said, "You know, the shining city on the hill." That he understood that that right. the way you're describing it, the importance of the American example, the American leadership that provided right. that that hope, yeah. and and to watch that be squandered, and and I think that that's the, you know, there's there's a fundamental di- difference in in patriotism. You know, you 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 have a president now who wraps himself in the flag and talks about America first. But really, doesn't does not believe in the American exceptionalism that that John McCain really believed in. He he doesn't know what it is, right? I, I mean, I I I I I pay a thousand dollars to hear some Trump define American exceptionalism. <laughs> he, 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 he what what? <laughs> yeah, well, 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 it's all transactional because yeah, right. we are bigger. So well, let's talk about you know and, and talk about through lines in, in somebody's life because you know people are flawed people make mistakes people um will will take you know the, the wrong path and you know as i get older i i, I think about the, the the real blessing of having a long life to be able to correct some of the things that you might have done earlier in in, in life mm-hmm. that the, the john mccain in his 80s was very different than the john mccain in his 40s yes. and in in his 50s and, yep. and look back on this and i think you 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 described this so you know i mean th- there are some defining moments in in someone's life you know for me when i think about you know you know the defining moments for john mccain's life is when, when he was offered the 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 opportunity to leave the Vietnamese prisoner of war camp because he was an admiral's son and he mm-hmm. turned it down. Mm-hmm. That really, to me, that that covers a multitude of sins for the yeah. rest of his life. Yeah, know? and I think he 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 saw it as a it was a great as a great test of his character and judgment and 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 it always gave him confidence even when he screwed up that he wasn't going to chronically screw up that when it, when, when the big test came, he would do the right thing. And he sort of had this point of view, as, as I mentioned before, that, uh, as long as you, you know, you, 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 you can screw up, you know, but you, you know, you can, if you, you know, show courage and, 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 and sacrifice and service yeah. to others, you know, you, you, you redeem those mistakes. And, uh, that's why the books, that's why he called himself the luckiest man, it's it's obviously a reference to you know he had a lot of not just in prison but he crashed a few airplanes he was his the, mm-hmm. the terrible fire on the USS Forrestal it was that was you know his aircraft carrier and it started when a missile fired across the de- flight deck and hit hit the 
fuel tank on his airplane while he was in the plane. He survived that. He survived several plane crashes. He survived a, a rather serious bout of melanoma. But it was really, more than anything, uh, it, it meant he felt he was lucky to have survived his own, you know, his own flaws and, uh, you know, to, and, and, and been a happy person, a satisfied person at the end of his life. And he would repeat it over and over again, right until the very end. And I mean, within weeks of his death, I'm the luckiest person you'll ever meet. Um, and that's, that's what he meant by it. And, um, you know, it's just, you're right. You know, when you say it's, he's, he couldn't be more opposite Trump there, there as if they're, as if they're a different species. I mean, it's, it, uh, it's, just it, it, it does feel like they're different species. Well, l- let's, let's talk about some of the low points though, that, that you talk about in the book. I mean, the, you know, leave, leaving aside the war, the Keating five scandal could have been career ending for, for, for yeah. John McCain. Um, yeah. you know, it's, it's lost now in the, in the distant mists of time, but, uh, just t- talk about how that shaped him and changed him because the John McCain, who was Mr. Campaign finance reform was obviously shaped by his own near death political experience there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it sort of, it, it had an impact on how he can comported himself in the, his sort of style of politics. He was always a pretty candid forthright guy. You know, there wasn't a big difference between the private and the public John McCain. His mother used to say he has no sides, you know, um, he's, he's all he is all the time. But uh, it did show him like, I think in the beginning, he lost his temper with a couple of local Arizona reporters and that, that did not redound to his benefit. And then shortly after that, he started giving these exhaustive press conferences in which he'd answer every question on the subject. And he realized the truth of the story was, 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 you know, was helpful to him, not a, not a hindrance or didn't expose him, you know? Uh, so that was a style he sort of kept, kept up, you know, he was inclined that way anyway, but that sort of, you know, confirmed him in that, um, that, 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 uh, that mindset. Um, he was also, he realized that, you know, how important appearances were in politics because there was an exhaustive, there was a special counsel appointed, Bob Bennett, and, uh, there was an exhaustive mm-hmm. investigation and public hearings, which were torture for him. He felt humiliated by them. But, you know, uh, there were five senators. Uh, this is going to, you know, test the memories of, of even people like us, Charlie, and uh, mm-hmm. people, 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 people born, you know, you know, after the invention of color tele- television probably won't know what we're talking about. But, uh, um, um, you know, he, uh, uh, he, the special investigator had recommended that McCain and John Glenn, who was one of the other five, mm-hmm be released that they hadn't done anything seriously wrong. And, uh, and the other three merited further investigation, but, uh, you know, politics being politics, McCain was the only Republican. They, they, you know, George Mitchell was majority leader at the time. He couldn't spring McCain free. Um, you know, which meant he couldn't spring John Glenn. I always thought, you know, it's one thing to hold the Republican, but to hold a Democrat to keep the Republican held, that's, that's pretty cold. But, uh, uh, so that frustrated and made him angry and everything, but he, he, he realized that he, he had, he had done something and he, there was an appearance problem there that he was responsible for. And, uh, um, you know, he, and it, he wasn't gonna, and the other thing it taught him is, and I, and I tell this story, I just started working for him really not long before all this began. And, um, I was his foreign policy aide to begin with. And we were, we were walking back from the Senate floor outside on a nice day and, uh, to the Russell Senate office building, we had, he had been debating something to, you know, some Central American issue and, um. And he was very quiet and very withdrawn, which is not typical for him. And uh, 
We're walking back and he didn't say a word on the whole walk back until we got to the stairs that lead to the first floor of the Russell building. And uh, he just looked at me and we hadn't been talking about anything. So it was apropos of nothing, but uh, just said, it's not always going to be like this. And mm-hmm. I got a, that was my first good glimpse at, at you know, the, the sort of unusual outsize, way above average John McCain resilience factor that, you know, he could, he could take a pounding and keep going like nobody I'd ever seen in, in this, this business. So it's, uh, and I guess that well, too, you know, that yeah. too, you know, he, he proved in Vietnam. Well, let's talk about the 2008 campaign. Um, how, did, did he, did he regret choosing Sarah Palin? And the way he, put it, he regretted not choosing Joe Lieberman. Mm-hmm. He never, he felt personally responsible to her, Sarah Palin and, uh, and, you know, and to the country, I guess, for putting her on the ticket. So he's never said a harsh word about her. She, I think I, um, unfortunately, I think he, he said what I just said that he, he wished that he'd pick Lieberman in his last book. And he wanted me to make sure that was in there. Um, and she, I heard she took uh, offense at that, but, but, he wasn't criticizing her. He was saying his instinct was to pick Lieberman. He wanted to do it. Guys like me, his aides talked him out of it because we were told quite correctly that it would have caused quite quite a furor in, in the, in, at the convention and that there would have been a challenge on the floor and, and we could probably win it, but we would limp out of the Twin Cities, you know, with, you know, uh, an unhappy, uh, you know, big chunk of unhappy Republicans. Um, so we prevailed on him not to do it. And yeah. well, you also remember how unhappy some Republicans were in that campaign. And I think of, you know, def- defining moments and the the and again, I'm, I'm certainly not unique in this respect. Um, that that moment where a woman is asking him about uh, Barack Obama being a Muslim and right. everything. And he goes, no, no, no. And he takes the microphone away from her and he doesn't go there. And, and there were people who were like, oh, see, this is it. He doesn't have that killer instinct. Yeah. And you know that a lot of the the, the Trump world ethos is sort of built around saying we can't be decent like that, you know, that we look back on that as as one of the great moments of of American political civility where he didn't go there. Yeah. But in, but there were a lot of Republicans that drew from that. No, you need to be a killer instinct. You need to throw everything at them. You need to imply that people have child porn on their blah, blah, blah. It, it does. It doesn't it doesn't matter. So you want to talk about the defining moment for 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 John McCain, but also how really politics has, you know, Republican politics has decided that, no, they want to go in a completely different direction. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, um, he would have been ashamed of himself if he had just nodded and gone along with it, or, you know, even if he just sort of brushed it off, he would have been ashamed of himself. And there was nothing he feared more than being ashamed of himself. I mean, he was just, it was a core thing with him. Uh, um, I don't I don't know how people um, can do something like that and not be ashamed of themselves. That's when it goes back to Ron Johnson. I mean, I, I, I just don't, I don't know, Charlie. I mean, it's, I don't know why. I people- don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. And and you, you spent, you know, the, the final years with, with John McCain, who clearly was thinking about his life. Yeah. You know, there's that famous Victor Frankel book, you know, about the meaning of life. Um, where says, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, where, where you define the meaning of your life, you, you, you imagine yourself, you know, being, you know, in your 80s, your 90s on your deathbed and you look back on your life and you think, what, what was the meaning of my life and what were the specific decisions that, that shaped the meaning of your life? That seems like the kind of thing that John McCain went through. And yeah. I'm struck by the number of people in American public life 
that don't seem to have that sense at all. They don't sit back and go, okay, you know, I, you know, yes, I may get a win here in this news cycle or in this political cycle, but when I look back on my life, am I going to be proud of this or am I going to be ashamed of this? Right. Yeah, man, search for meaning, boy. Um, you know, written by a former concentration camp prisoner. But uh, um, you know, when I read that the first time, McCain had read it. Obviously, I said, "My God, this was written for McCain." <laughs> you know, it's the way he dealt with everything. You know, uh, but uh, it was um, the way he dealt with everything. Yeah, because um, he he didn't want to put it into a narrative. So no. why did he? Since we're on this the subject, why did he do the thumbs down? And 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 vote to sure. deliver Donald Trump probably one of his greatest legislative defeats on on uh, that skinny health care bill. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it was influenced by the fact that he'd just been diagnosed and with, with brain cancer and and just had an operation to remove a tumor from his frontal lobe. But uh, it actually started in advance of that. Curiously, he, he had gone home and uh, to to Arizona, uh, and. Uh, and before he had left a couple of weeks before that, he said, um, he called me because I still, you know, I, I left the Senate in 2000 for the 2008 campaign, but I stayed employed on his committees, the reelection committee, you know, PACs for mm -hmm. years afterwards. And he said, I want to give a speech when we come back on regular order that we're, he was, he was fed up with what he viewed as he, he and McConnell got along better than people think they did, but with the leadership on both sides, aggregating more and more power to them themselves and their staff at the expense of the committees. He was a committee chairman, you know, and he, you know, he sort of came of age in the Senate, you know, you know, aspiring to be the armed service committee chairman someday. And, and cause he had, he had admired you know, many of his predecessors, but, uh, uh, he wanted to give the speech which says, you know, what he viewed committees as the, you know, the Senate was the last institution left where compromise was sort of necessary. Um, and uh, and and that usually occurred in committees where you got to know the members, your fellow members of you know, the committees you were assigned to better than you knew other members, you know, and you you made deals with them all the time in committee. And that 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 led to what McCain thought they should pride themselves on, that you don't get 100 percent of your way. But you if you make a little mod every year, you make a modest progress on on the, the problems, you know, the country's problems. That's an honorable achievement. And that's the best that our system is set up to produce. So let's let's do it. You know, so he wanted to get back to what he called regular order, where where uh, an alternative to Obamacare would go to the, you know, the health committee and uh, Democrats and Republicans would work out some kind of fix to Obamacare or an alternative to Obamacare, or at least try to and not just have leadership staff write it and you know, and just, you know, whip the votes on both sides and get the usual product. He thought that, you know, major pieces of legislation needed buy-in from both parties or they would always be just sort of transitory and uh, uh, which is exactly what's happening now, you know, and, and he had campaigned like other Republicans had campaigned on, on repealing Obamacare, but it was always repeal and replace, you know, and the, the motion, or the bill that he was going to vote for or, and, and voted against um, just repealed major portions of Obamacare and didn't replace it with anything. So on top of that, then you lay over, he had just been diagnosed with a terminal disease. He knew it was a, a uh, bad diagnosis. He wasn't fooled into you know, deluding himself into thinking he was going to survive this. But uh, um, 
he also knew that he would have literally the best medical care he could, you know, you, anybody could possibly attain, you know, and a lot of people wouldn't have any decent medical care because they didn't have the money or insurance for it, you know. So that put him in a moral quandary as well. And, though, for, and for all those reasons, for the process part of it, uh, but also for the, that, that moral quandary is why he, he gave the famous thumbs down. Now, I'll, you know, it was a dramatic moment. Um, I was at home and I'd fallen asleep on my couch, so I missed it live. <laughs> but no, uh, no, I was asleep too. I um, went to sleep thinking it was going to pass, and then you wake up in the morning. It's like, oh my gosh! Yeah, but I mean, they've uh, people have diagrammed. Some somebody said some diagram that that scene where he, the Senate's <laughs> watching him as he shoots the thumbs down, as if it was a Renaissance painting. But uh, um, he was really he was the last person to vote because he was get he kept being pulled out into the hallway to be lobbied by Republicans, including Pence. Who put him on the phone with Trump, and uh, and that, that he had just finished talking to Trump when he walked on the floor. Otherwise, he would have voted earlier. He wasn't he wasn't deliberately waiting for the and the thumbs down thing. To, you know, he's he had a because of his war injuries, he broke both arms mm -hmm. and one leg when he ejected from his airplane in Hanoi. But he, he had very a difficult time raising his arms, a, 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 you know, other than shoulder level, you know. So that's how he, whenever he did a thumbs up or down, it went straight out in front of him. You, you see him at ball games, give him thumbs up like that, um, and uh, um, and and it, that's a typical thing to do to gesture some physical gesture in the well because typically it's crowded with people all voting at the same time, and the clerks can't hear yay or nay. So you give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down or a finger up or a finger down or something like that. So really it was just, you know, it, 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 it took on all that drama because of the circumstance, obviously, but it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't as staged as I think some people think it was. No. And I, and I remember, I remember the speech that he gave about uh, the, the regular order, which may sound again, wonky, but uh, really I think one of the stories of the last few years has been the, the sort of the, you know, institutional uh, self-immolation of the United States Senate uh, that yeah. has really become, uh, you know, was willing to surrender its its dignity and its powers uh, again and again and again. And both and both sides, both Republicans have done it. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, so what? This is the obvious question. Had he lived, what do you think he would be doing in this campaign right now? Uh, well, he didn't vote for Donald Trump last time. And as I've said, right. oftentimes Trump doesn't improve on longer acquaintance. So my assumption is he'd be voting right. for his longtime friend, Joe Biden, <laughs> but uh, um, certainly his widow is. And uh, and I think she's, you know, uh, probably uh, not doing it simply because she assumes John would want her to, but I mean, she's got her, you know, I mean, she's made her own judgment here, but, uh, but I think uh, it's a dramatic, it's a dramatic story. Maybe we take it for granted, but when you think about what's happened to the Arizona Republican party and what the Arizona Republican party once represented and what it has become now, it is a remarkable moment. It's, and, and I, and I think it's embodied by some of the, the things that Cindy McCain has said and some of the ads that she's running there. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a glimpse at the future for the Republican Party. Um, you know, any party that uh, succeeds, the more people it discourages from voting, um, is not a party with a long future. And Arizona, a bedrock red state for years and years and years, is um, you know it's, it's purple and it's trending blue. And uh, Maricopa County, which is you know. Where all the Republican votes were that would overwhelm the more Democratic South, Tucson and Pima County. 
it's uh, you know it's it's as David Axelrod calls it um, one big suburb, <laughs> and uh, uh, it's sprawling. Its growth has been tremendous over the years, and a lot of migration in from other states. Um, you know, it's uh, you know we're gonna. I mean, the way the Republican Party politicking, if it continues like this, you know, sort of exploiting nativism and phony populism and, you know, uh, that, that kind of stuff, you know, you, 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 it, it's just going to dry up and go away. You know, it's, there, there, there'll be a point where a Republican candidate for president can't win Texas, which means there'll never be a Republican president again. And uh, so I, I think that's exactly right. And you are seeing the future in, in Arizona where the Republican Party has become crazier and crazier. I mean, we're at the yeah. point now where a Jeff Flake or a John McCain probably could not win a Republican primary any longer. But but the people who win the Republican primary may be incapable of winning a general election. Well, they are. And I think, you know, uh, Flake would have had a problem. McCain had such independents can vote in a Republican primary mm -hmm. there. And uh, McCain had such a he always had a problem with a quarter or a third of the party. If, going back to the Ev Meekham days, he had called on Ev Meekham, the old crazy Republican governor oh, yeah. and to, to resign. And, uh, um, he, so he, he's, he's, he's long had that problem, but he always made more than made up for it with, you know, crossover votes from, you know, Democrats and independents, which, um, you know, I mean, he, 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 he handily dispatched a serious, uh, Republican challenger in the primaries in, in his last two primaries and, uh, and then would win, you know, huge, he, you know, the, he faced a very credible, uh, democratic candidate, his last reelection, um, you know, a sitting member of Congress. And, you know, he won by 14 points when Donald Trump won by a little over three. Yeah. So um, congratulations on the book, because I'm, 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 I'm looking at how you're doing on Amazon.com. Um, number two in uh, in bestsellers for Congress, uh, um, number five in World War II biographies, which is really something in the Washington Post said that Mark Salter's psychological portrait of McCain is informed and convincing McCain may have con considered himself the luckiest man on earth, but we too are lucky to have counted him among our leaders and to have this intimate biography that will keep his memory bright. Uh, Mark Salter, thank you so much for spending time with us today on the podcast. Thank you, Charlie. I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening to today's uh, Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again. There are just 13 days to go before Election Day.